On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. This is Randy W. Hall from that dandy classic music hour, and when I'm not drinking Diet Mountain Dew by the gallon, I'm listening to Set Lusting Bruce with J-squared Jesse Jackson. You know it, I know it, he's the best out there. Of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. But tonight, we're going down a little different path. Um, I have a talented, um, award winning musician joining me and writer of a number one Billboard hit. Um, I have the man himself, uh, Jim. Introduce yourself. I'm Jim Boja. I do a thing called Bruce Off Broadway that uh, I hope we're going to be talking about. We are going to be talking about that. Um, I love that. I love this. I love this conversation already. Yeah. Well, thanks. I just think that is so fun. Um, and and so, but I'm 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 treating that as dessert. And, ah, yes. And so we're going to do our vegetables first. Absolutely. Um, so uh, so Jim, talk yeah, about Rutabaga. yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, one of the things I'm fascinated by is people growing up and the, where their musical roots were. And give you the example, I grew up in a family that, you know, I make the joke we listen to both kind of music, country and Western. There you uh, go. You know, my dad was a big Johnny Cash, Merle Haggard fan, Hank That's Williams. All right. uh, my mom loved uh, – you know, Fats Domino, Bobby Darren, you know, oh, yeah. so we, we listen to a lot of, and it, in fact, to this day, we'll be on a classic country station, and my wife will look over and go, how the heck do you know this song? I'm like, well, I heard it growing up. Fine upbringing. Exactly. So talk to me growing up. What kind of music did your family listen to? Uh, well, my dad was... Um... A part-time musician. My dad actually played accordion, uh, which is a formidable instrument. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on on accordion, and my dad was actually a pretty brilliant uh, player um, in his, you know, tweens and teens. He used to do uh, like national competitions and always be, you know, first, second, or third in these uh, accordionist competitions because it was the uh, 40s and 50s. And uh, uh, good Italian Polish boys uh, played the accordion, uh, but he was a monster on it. I, I have some uh, my when my grandparents uh, 
um, sold their house, moved out of the house that they lived in for, you know, 50, 60 years, uh, say 10, 15 years ago. Um, they had some reel to reel tapes that I got a hold of and cleaned up and went through. And there's some stuff of my dad playing at, you know, age 12, age 13. That's just monstrously scary. I mean, you know, it's just like, holy crap, that guy could play. Uh, so, you know, he had a, a pretty broad taste in music that sort of went all the way up to and maybe started to include uh, early rock and roll. Uh, he would like blues based things uh, in rock and roll. And then uh, kind of once the Beatles came along, he sort of jumped off the train. And that's sort of where I jumped on the train. Uh, but, you know, I would have uh, music growing up. He'd play a lot of classical music. Uh, I would hear, um, you know, things from the 40s and 50s. Um, my dad used to um, have records by a group called the Harmonicats, who were four harmonica players who would do arrangements of songs for four, four harmonicas. And, you know, one of the things that, that my dad liked about that was playing accordion. He could do bass notes with his left hand on the buttons, chords with his left hand on the buttons, and then use his right hand to play melody and either a harmony or a counterpoint. So he would take those records and listen to them and figure out how to play the four harmonica parts all on accordion at the same time. And, you know, that's really as an influence, a huge, you know, I, I didn't realize it until like maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago, that that was such a huge influence in how I play guitar and now how I play ukulele is to listen to a record and try to deconstruct it down to the individual parts and then see how you can put all of those parts on one instrument and play the whole arrangement. So that was really a big thing that I got from, from my dad. Um, you know, it sounds funny, but I was into music so young. Uh, you know, I had like a 45 collection by the time I was four years old. So, Music and my childhood are really firmly intertwined. So, uh, like uh, Carl Stalling, do you know who that was? No, that, that it sounds familiar. Carl Stalling did the music for the classic Warner Brothers cartoons. So, like all okay. that Bugs Bunny and stuff like that. That stuff I love, and I didn't realize until many, many years later how much he was drawing in his compositional style from uh like um you know Gershwin or even Stravinsky you know early 20th century modern composers um the little rascals theme i loved that as a piece of music really early growing up and then you know because of my age uh it was like late 60s early 70s pop music so i got the, i got the motherload of you know the beatles the stones uh the monkeys burt bacharach uh, Simon and Garfunkel, uh, Cat Stevens, uh, you know, all of that kind of stuff. I was, uh, uh Nielsen. I love Nielsen. Uh, that was part and parcel of my childhood growing up. Definitely. You know, what's interesting, Jim is, um, I graduated high school in 1977. So all right, I, you know, I grew up with that top 40 radio. I grew up, you know, the music on, you know, where you could get a little bit of everything, the novelty exactly. songs, the, you know, you know, rhythm and blues, 
crossover country. Um, so you had a very diverse palette. And then I, I love the idea that you're talking about cartoons and the music um, because, you know, the animation worked with the music to present that story. Absolutely. And I did read on your website, you know, you grew up, you know, watching a lot of TV and entertainment and, you know, TV theme songs is something that's gone away. But right. that was something that, you know, we all knew. And, um, you yeah, know, I, I uh, you know, you and I were kind of in the golden era of of that as well. You know, those some of some of those 60s themes in particular, 70s ones turned out to be great pop songs yeah. and the 60s ones turned out to be just amazing you know they were like mancini themes yeah. and things like that so uh, uh like the get smart theme is so amazing the flintstones theme is incredible it mo- it starts with the intro and you hear the you know uh and then it does a modulation it modulates up a fourth by the time the singers come in with the Flintstones, meet the Flintstones, that's hip. That's like a really, really advanced, clever, harmonic little trick. And they were throwing it into a theme of a cartoon, you know? So I feel very lucky to have grown up at the time that I did in that the the music that sort of washed over me from the pop culture that you would just kind of find yourself swimming in. Yeah still had a lot of meat on it and it was it was it was very musical and it wasn't uh you know you and i are probably also yeah we're a little young but you know if we were into music at a really early age like if you were doing that like i was you know those last vestiges of the types of music that existed before rock came in and popular culture kind of became homogenized i mean i realize that now it's like it's not rock everywhere it's kind of you know r&b and pop and stuff but but it is kind of the 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 range of music that you would be exposed to i think has has narrowed yeah it absolutely has and um it, not we want to make grumpy old men, you know. Back yeah, in the yeah, yeah, and it's days. not. It's not about like this no, is the good type of music and that's a know, bad type of music. I yeah. just think that there was something very, very good about being exposed to a variety of musical styles and 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 coming from people who maybe had a, a, a non-pop music, you know, had some classical or had some jazz, like that was filtered into the culture. A little bit more. And then you you saw a lot more magpieing of, you know, like my, my thing is I always come back to the Beatles. It, you know, you think about just on the White Album, how many musical styles are covered on the White Album? Whereas now, uh, you know, an album might be 15 versions of the same song. Yeah, it, that is interesting. And, you know, the same thing it, as we think about it um you know, Johnny Cash, when he would do his show, would have not only Chris Christopherson, which now does not seem like a stretch, but the time it was. That was but hip, would, yeah. Would have Bob Dylan, would have Joan Baez, would have people on his show that he said, you know, good music is good music. And, yep. Um, and I think that's kind of uh, – there is a 
there is a lack of diversity. Um, you know, I love my Sirius XM, but, you know, there is a channel for everything you want. And there is just hard to find a, um, hey, I just want a all-around, you know, channel that's going to give me a little bit of everything. I guess right, right. There, there's a channel. There's individual channels for anything you want, but there's not a channel for everything you want. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is true. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, you know, there's so much media and so many avenues for media now that it's very easy to get channeled into just an endless supply of something that you're already comfortable with. Yes. And, you know, wh whether that's music or political ideas or, you, you know, news sources or whatever, it, it just seems to be a, across the board a, a thing that is a, a 21st century conundrum of like, how do you how do you not wind up being a, a, a one dimensional dot yeah. by the end of your existence by, by always surrounding yourself with the same stuff? Absolutely. Um, so it sounds like it was in your genes of uh, becoming a musician. But what what made you decide, uh, you know, when you grew up, you wanted to make music? Yeah, well, I mean, definitely music was the first thing that I loved and has been, you know, the, the only consistent thing that I've loved. And I started begging my parents for a guitar when I was four. Uh, my hands were too small, which plays a role in our ukulele story later. But, uh, you know, finally, when I was five, I think my I always say I think my dad slipped the uh, the guy at the music store at 20 or something. I was probably a five back then. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, just like just take the kid and give him lessons because, you know, I'd already been to the music store like two or three times and they'd get out the smallest guitar and, you know, I'd try to wrap my hand around the neck and, you know, the, the teacher would say, oh, yeah, his hands are too small. And I would like bust out crying, but I want to play guitar. So finally, when I started playing guitar, um, you know, it 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 was it was a guitar. <laughs> uh, it was a small guitar, but it was a classical guitar. Uh, but my hands could only reach the bottom four strings. So I could play the D, G, B, and E strings for about the first six months, nine months. Uh, and I, I remember being able to play the A string, reaching a note on the A string for the first time because, you know, my hand had grown a little bit and I could start playing that string. Uh, so, you know, it was always the thing that I wanted to do. But I grew up in an environment where... I literally never saw in real life uh, a person who made music for a living, for full time. You know, I, yeah. I grew up kind of in the middle of nowhere in a, a very rural uh, uh, community, lived on a dirt road. Um, so, Penn Gillette from Penn and Teller yeah. said, you know, he was from this small town in Massachusetts, and he said the first person he ever met that was in show business was himself, you know? Right, right. He had right. no concept. Very, very similar. Yeah. So, so you know, I, I, I didn't even, I had the fantasy, but I had no idea how to even make that happen. So, you know, coming out of school and uh, out of college, um, I moved to Philadelphia in uh, 87 
and, you know, was in a relationship that turned into a marriage. I was working for a company called Ensonic, uh, which is not around anymore, but they're a very cool company. They made like synthesizers and samplers and, you know, music gear. So I had a day job that was music adjacent, but, you know, I spent my day working on things that other people would buy and make music with. And I mean, you know, I would make music at home with them, but it wasn't the thing that I, I was doing. And then, and here's, here's, here's the sad part of our story listeners. Okay. Uh, I, have uh, I had, ready. I had a week, I had a week in 96 where let's not get into too much detail, but on Tuesday of that week, uh, it became very evident that my marriage was over and on Thursday of that week, uh, there was a culling of Insonic. Uh, they had actually gotten bought by another company called Emu, uh, and I lost my job. So I lost my my uh, marriage and my job all in one week, which seems horrible. Uh, but in retrospect, uh, you know, it made me think, well, Everything that I've been working on and for and sort of the life that I've been building for the last X number of years is now gone. Uh, what do I really want to do? Because clearly I can do anything because I've just lost everything. Uh, and the thing was, by then I'd been living in Philadelphia and I actually saw real live musicians. And I had a, a buddy of mine, Mike Frank, uh, who was my keyboard player for a lot of years, played on a um, some of my records and was always playing in my bands. And, you know, I remember a conversation where he just said to me, you know, it's just a, it's a, a job. It's just a career. You know, some people like are doctors or some people are bakers or some people are accountants. You know, it's like, you're really good. You could do this. You know, you just have to like understand that it's a job. Just say it's not magic. It's like, you know, just go out and start working. And so that's what I did. And, you know, that's now, what, 22 years ago. Uh, and as they say, you know, I haven't worked an honest day since. Uh, so it's been great. But but it was a really long process between, you know, discovering music, which was maybe the first thing that, that I, I really loved, uh, and starting to play and, you know, being a musician in terms of thinking about music all the time and learning an instrument and learning to sing and getting involved with tape recorders and recording and things like that. But this idea that, no, it's okay. You can, you can be a musician. It's all, it's all right. The world will allow you to do that and no one will think, uh, you know, badly of you. Uh, that was a real revelation and it took, it took, you know, now I kick myself for how long it, it took me to come around to, but, you know, the flip side of it is that by the time I did finally get in, I was all in because I'd waited so long to be able to do it, you know? Yeah, you know, that's kind of interesting. Um, I I have a good friend named Tom Zoller, and, you know, he is a uh, cartoonist. He's done graphic design for the past, oh, too many years. You know, he's done, he's been self-employed and he just, he's done comics, he's done a little bit of animation work. And, you know, he talked about, he always knew he wanted to draw. He knew that was the yep. only thing he ever wanted to do. And, um, and he didn't know how successful he would be in it, but he wanted to do that. And so 
I do think that's, um, you know, Bruce talks about, you know, he says the reason why we call it playing for a living, right, that we play music. But there is a sense to work to that. Um, of course. That you, you know, you show up, you've got to do the work, you've got to, you know, there's um, uh, my nephew um, owns, he, he runs a band called the Night Isles, Night Owls. They're based out of Austin and they do yeah. kind of a 60s dance kind of show band, but with original music. That oh, he right writes on. and produces. I like that. Yeah, it's, it's it's really a lot of fun. You know, he's got a horn section and dancers. And when I talk to uh, Ryan, he says the the two hours on stage are the easiest part of my gig. You know, people say, "Oh, it must be horrible," or "Are you nervous singing in front of people or playing?" He goes, "That's the like, easiest." No, that's what we want to do. Yeah, he said it's the. <laughs> Figuring out the bus schedule and who gets the front seat, who gets a hotel room this time, who's got to sleep in the van, how often do we stop and use the bathroom, you know? How do you, he says all. Yes, the it's all it's all that stuff. You know, there's there's this perception that musicians are are flakes and you know irresponsible in that, but you know the ones who actually uh, make a living at it, you're you're an entrepreneur and you're, you're a, uh, you're a, a self-employed, uh, you know, individual. So, uh, if you don't have your, um, what's a word I can say crap together, yeah. uh, you know, you're, you're going to be out of luck. And one of the things that I've found, cause I do a lot of, um, sideman gigs as well. Like I play with, uh, Joan Osborne, uh, uh quite a bit. Uh, I play uh, my buddy Pete Donnelly, um, playing a band called the Fab Faux, another band called the 60s show. Uh, you know, sometimes your musical skills will not be the only reason why you get the gig. You know, and like, how are you to hang with? Do you show up on time? Are you a pain in the in the butt? You know, like all of those things are really part of the mix of whether you're going to work or not. So I, I don't know. Um, uh, Neil Gaiman is a. Yep. OK, you know, he did make good art. He did a um, a lecture, um, a keynote address. And um, I talk about this a lot. He said. You need to be you need to be easy to work with, you need to be talented, and you need to have your work on time, be dependable. But yep. you really only need to be two of the three. Right. <laughs> he says if you're easy to get along with and you're on time, they'll take maybe a little less shabby. If you're really good and you're on time, they will put up with you being an SOB. And you know Yeah, and, you yeah, know, I think I think that's a fairly true I yeah. think that's a fairly true statement. And and I think that kind of goes back to what you're saying is um, I know that when I, I run a call center, I run a technical support center in my day job. And when I'm interviewing, not only do are they going to do the job, do I think they'll do the job, but do I want to work with this person? Yeah, exa exactly. And, you know, when you're – when you're a musician, you know, you were talking about like who sits where on the bus, who's uh, in the hotel rooms, you know, when you're doing a touring thing, 
You're right. It is. It's a couple hours on stage and then it's 22 hours in, you know, people don't realize that tours become like floating cities. Yes. Right. Like you're going to all of these various places, but most likely because of the schedule of when you're getting in and when you've got to load in and do sound check and then you got to grab dinner real quick and then do the show and then you got to sleep and then get up in the morning and whatever. You're not really in those places. The place that you're in is on that tour. And all of those people who are on that tour with you, you are going to be in such close quarters with them so many hours of the day for, you know, however long the tour is. So that idea of do I want to hang with this person absolutely comes into call when when deciding who you want to take on tour with you yeah uh jim i we're going to get to bruce i promise i want to hear about the ukulele but i and you know wikipedia is never wrong but oh no <laughs> never ever oh, um, God. but it does mention that my Wiki, my wikipedia page is a is a uh a disgrace to uh mankind so um are you a fan of brian wilson and the beach boys uh, yes. Okay, okay. Yes. Good. And that part's did right. you get to work with Tony Asher? I did get to work with okay. Tony Asher. So as a, you know, pet sounds, obviously. Yeah. One of my, you know, when you're, when you're talking about albums, you know, that's always on my list of things that I love. Um, Indeed. A little bit of a geek with a fanboy when you're meeting Tony. Uh, yeah, but he's really, uh, you know, that that happened because uh, I was making my second album. Okay. Yeah, my second. No, I was making my third album. Okay. Uh, and, um, you know, when I uh, make albums, I like to um, sit and watch the calendar ch change from one year to the next year to the next year to the yes. next year. Uh, and then sometimes when there are uh, labels and management and things like that involved, they don't like that. Right. They apparently think that you should be making it on some type of schedule. Yes. Uh, and so, you know, because I was still trying to figure out some of the songs, 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 um, you know, I was asked the dreaded question, oh, well, should you do co-writes with someone? And, you know, I'm I'm not usually a, a co-write guy, but I thought I was being clever. And I said to him, well, you know, like the, the people I I would want to write with, you know, they're not going to write with me. I'm like, well, name, name some people. I was like, well, like, you know, like Tony Asher. So my manager calls Tony Asher. And plays him some of my stuff. And Tony Asher's like, hey, I like this guy. He's good. Yeah, I'll, I'm, I'm going to be in New York in a couple of weeks. You know, like, uh, let's get together. So, you know, that took a lot of the, the craziness out of it. Because I knew by the time I saw him that, you know, he'd heard my stuff and he liked my music. And, uh, you know, that we were going to do this. But it was amazing meeting him. And, you know, he's a super sweet guy, uh, um, very much, you know, when we were writing, um, it was kind of just the start of uh, Mad Men, you know, the okay. TV show. Sure. And, uh, you know, Tony's thing is that 
he was an ad guy in the 60s. He was an ad copy guy and that's met right. Brian Wilson at a party. Uh, and that's how like that collaboration happened. And in fact, did not quit his advertising job when he was working with Brian and, and afterwards, you know, he, he stayed in that world. And so, you know, it's just funny. Like I meet him for lunch and, uh, uh, you know, he's having a scotch at lunch and it's like, yes, this is awesome. <laughs> that this is, is awesome. this is, it's Mad Men. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, he would just very casually tell these stories of what it was like to, and, you know, just bringing it up in, in, uh, you know, the most nonchalant roundabout way, like, uh, uh the song that we worked on together, I already had the music and, and the melody and the chord progression, and I knew kind of what it was going to be about. And I had a couple of lines, you know, and so we're going through that and he's like, well, you know. This is a lot how I work with Brian, because Brian would have the music, you know, he'd have the chords and the thing, and he'd sit at the piano and he'd play and he'd sing me the melody and the chord progression. And then he'd tell me, he's like, I, I, this song makes me feel like this, or I'm thinking about this. And we'd kind of talk about how the music made him feel. And then I'd go off and write the lyric based on, you know, the conversation that we had and the music that I heard and the melody that I heard. And I was like, Yes, that's great. That's exactly what I want to do. Uh, and at one point, we were talking about, um, wouldn't it be nice? You know, like it was maybe the one time I was like, okay, I got to ask you. Come on, yeah. man. Wouldn't it be nice? Like, what was that like? He's like, that's interesting because he said that was the last thing that we finished. And... Brian, he said, Brian would play it for him occasionally. He's like, but we're not, we're not going to work on this now. Like, I don't want to work on this yet. And it's like, I'm still like finding some things, but listen, this one, this one's going to be nice. And, you know, Tony was like, yeah, Brian, that's going to be really nice. And then, uh, they, they, he got to the point, Brian got to the point where he had the music finished and, Tony says to me, is like, oh, yeah. And, I, and so, you know, uh, he made a cassette for me of him, you know, just playing the 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 chords and singing the melody, you know, once he finalized it. And I said to him, Tony, where is that tape? And he looked surprised. He's like, oh, oh, you know. Well, I haven't thought about that. I, I'm sure I probably have it. It's It's got to be in a box somewhere in, in like the garage. I'm like, Tony, I will come to your house. Yes. <laughs> I will. I will spend the next month in your garage going through. I was like that, you know, like that's his that's history. Yeah. He's like. Yeah, I should really, uh, I should really get into the garage and, uh, and you know, I, I've only seen him a few times since then, but I always ask him, I was like, get, go in that garage and find that tape yet. He's like, Oh no, I got to do that someday. I got to do that. Oh, that's, that is. So, uh, it, you know, people, if, uh, any of you know, knows where, uh, uh Tony Asher, uh, lives, <laughs> uh, if you go in his garage, there's a, a huge, uh, rock and roll artifact. Yes. That is amazing. Um, so you mentioned earlier that there was a story about 
your ukulele journey. So, um, oh, yeah, yeah. I think this is a good time to talk about. It. Well, first off, let's give your plug. Um, not only were you nice enough to join me, but you actually have a show coming up. So why don't you give a uh, little details about that? And then we'll go into that. So I do. For those of you in the heart of Bruce country, uh, I'm playing this Friday night, which is uh, June 22nd, 2018, uh, at 7 p.m. at uh, the Saint in Asbury Park, uh, which Mecca is the epi- that's, phone. Yes. that's the epicenter. Uh, and um Doing Bruce off Broadway, uh, a show of Bruce tunes on ukulele, and so, uh, and you know and singing too. Yeah, um, that. So I think this is all going to be joined together. But um, how you your ukulele journey and why you know why Bruce off Broadway? What what was the, so? Let's kind of I guess we'll start with you know picking up the ukulele and using that as you know one of an instrument where where did that come from what what led you to that so you know certainly growing up i had played ukuleles but they'd always been you know like toy things that were on the wall and they never stayed in tune whatever and i never gave it much thought uh and then one day in 2009 i was at a friend's place and uh, I always like to uh, I, I always like being in places that have instruments in them because it just makes me more comfortable if I can pick up something and play with it. And uh, they didn't have a, a keyboard or a guitar, but they had a, a decent uke. And I picked it up and started fooling around with it. And for whatever reason on that day, it just clicked immediately with me because. You know, I told you earlier about being like five years old and wanting to play guitar and getting taken to the to the uh, music store and, and my hands are too small. And then them finally letting me play on the bottom four strings of a guitar. Well, that guitar was a, a classical guitar. So this, the strings on a classical guitar are nylon strings, which is what the strings on a ukulele are. Uh, and then ukulele is four strings. So as soon as I put my hands on it and, you know, had my fingers kind of go thumb, first finger, second finger, third finger on my uh, right hand, you know, to, to do like a finger style kind of thing that I do on guitar, it, it you know, it, it almost was like an out-of-body experience of like, oh, this is being at the music store and getting to hold the guitar and I can't reach those bottom two strings, but I can play these four strings. And for, for some reason, that to me, it was just really important. I was I was having kind of a hard, hard time musically at the at the time, uh, uh, you know, with my label at that time and stuff. And and something about this, it just it was a way to reapproach music from a place that felt both familiar and fresh at the same time, because, you know, certainly if you play guitar, you can kind of pick up a ukulele and do some basic things with it right off the bat because of the similarity similarities that it has with the guitar. But then there's a couple of things about it that if you're really going to dive in, it makes the instrument its own instrument and, and kind of gives it its own, uh, harmonic sound and way of playing it, way of approaching it. 
And I just got really excited about that. I, I just when I was when I finally did start playing guitar and I had a couple of years of lessons right at the beginning, you know, I was never the kid that you had to, you know, threaten with <laughs> with a beating or with right. being grounded or something to go practice. It's like I was the kid that you had to drag away from the instrument. And, and I just I, I discovered really easy, uh, really early on that for me. I could find something that I couldn't do on the instrument and I could figure out a way of breaking it down and just doing it over and over and over and over and over. And if I would just get even that little bit much better, it was, uh, you know, it was pre-drugs, but it was like a drug. It was like this jolt of yes. And somehow like I managed to, turn that into not minding being horrible, right? right. You know, because that's some people get discouraged because they're horrible. Uh, but if you just, if you can flip it to not pay attention to all of the stuff that you can't do and just find, oh my God, I can do this one little thing that I couldn't do yesterday or I couldn't do last week or I couldn't do, you know, when I started playing two hours ago, that thing for me is what drove me forward. And that's how I became with the uke. You know, it was just like, oh, my God, this is an instrument. I love it. I want to figure out everything about it. I want to find these things. And so I started doing these arrangements. And, you know, each thing that I would come up with, there'd be something that I get started. And then there'd be the point of doom where I'm like, oh, hell, how am I going to make this work? How, how can I play this part? And it would seem, you know, completely insurmountable. This is never going to happen. And then one little thing would fall. And it's like, oh, oh, that's the key. I get it. I get what I have to do. Now it's going to take some time, but I'm going to do it. And one of those first songs that I did a, a ukulele arrangement for, and it was and it was really just because I was playing other things and just practicing, and I sort of struck on, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you'll be able to hear this, but... It was just that. Yeah, I can hear it fine. You can hear that fine? Yeah. And I realized those were the first two chords of Thunder Road, right? That. Sure. Right? And so that was the start. And, you know, and then and then it got complicated in the middle and I had to figure <laughs> figure out bits. But but it was just. You know, coming back to this thing that I love, this this Bruce tune that I've always loved since the, the first time I heard it, but rediscovering it because I'm approaching it on a new instrument. So I've got to kind of take the song back apart and put it back together again on this new instrument. And it was just a joy. Uh, and so, you know, I was playing that and that always got a great response. Uh you know, because, I mean, look, it's like cheating. When you play a song that's that great a song, if you just play the song, people are going to think you're brilliant. I mean, it, it right. really is. It's it's cheating. Uh, but uh, then Bruce, you know, did Springsteen on, uh, on Broadway. And I don't know, it just at, at a certain point, it's like, wait a minute. What if <laughs> instead of charging people you know, whatever it is, $800 to, 
to go see Bruce play his songs, you know, on a six string instrument. Yeah. It'll be Bruce off Broadway and it'll be me playing his songs on a four string instrument for significantly less money. So I'm going to get to more of that, but yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I know you love the Beatles, but I, I take it you're a Springsteen fan as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Without a doubt. I mean, you know, the Beatles are always my first love and they're, they're, they're sort of the, the, the gateway that led to everything else. But, uh, you know, like I bought my first Springsteen album when I was in high school, you know, so I was like 15, 16 years old. Sure. Uh, you know, so yeah, that it's been a, it's, it's been a long, long road. So I always make a point of saying this, Jim, that I, I, Growing up, I grew up in Louisiana, and then I, I've been living in Texas, Dallas, since 1984. So um, it is tougher for me to see Springsteen shows. Yeah. Um, so I never – I do not think the number of times you've seen Bruce perform live is a fair barometer of your fandom. But just curious, it, are you a multiple guy seeing him times or uh, – Yes, but but not that, not that many. Okay. Um, the first time I saw him – was uh on a on a festival thing um not live aid what was uh oh boy it was very what's that was it the no nukes or no it was the uh uh uh, make poverty history right with you two okay and sting and springsteen and so this would have been and in fact Good God, could that have possibly not been an E Street Band tour? May not have. Yeah, uh, but you know that that was that's probably like the weirdest way to see Bruce yeah. live for the first time, right? Because I I don't think it was right when this is like late eighties, mm-hmm. and yeah. I think it was that that weird time when when uh, you know after Tunnel of Love, uh, when he was I think I think Sting got to him. It's like, yeah. Oh, you know, you, you know, you, you should just hire the guy or the cats. Uh, <laughs> and so I saw, you know, uh, it wasn't a one hour set, but I bet you it wasn't more than a 90 minute set, you know, because yeah. it was a festival. Right. So I'm seeing like a 90 minute festival set of Bruce without the, the E Street band. Uh, but it was still awesome. I mean, yeah, you know, sure. on, he's he's. he's in, he's an incredible frontman. He's an incredible showman. And, you know, uh, that being in a uh, stadium, that's a whole different job, right? Like, yes. it, you know, uh, it. Uh, I marvel at people who are able to connect to an audience from that distance you know, when they're that small and tiny dots right. and, 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 you know, obviously, man, he's, he's got this gift of, of making you feel like you're connected to him in that space when there's a hundred thousand other people or, you know, 60,000 other people or whatever it is. Yeah. And man, I don't know what that is, but you know, he's got it. And, and yeah, there and is I that- was, Whatever it is, exactly. Yeah. 
So, uh, and then uh, I've seen a couple of, uh, you know, proper E Street shows okay. uh, when he's played here at, uh, you, you know, uh, they don't name things for uh, real things anymore. They just name them after companies. So right. I don't even know what the places are called or what they were called back at that. But, but you know, the Enormo yeah. Domes of Philadelphia. Right. Um, yeah. Um, so, so uh, to answer your question, I think I've only seen him like four times live. Okay. Did, when you're, I think, by the way, the off-Broadway is amazing. Um, I think um, I've, you know, thanks to Mr. Google, um, I've seen um, YouTube videos of you playing, you know, 10th Avenue Freeze Out and Born to Run and Thunder Road and For You. Yeah. And, and I think you, um, you, are, you aren't doing um, a cover band. You have put your own twist on it. And I think that's what is nice to see. You want that with someone doing this. So first off, just yeah, – Yeah, thank, it sounds thank great. you. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate that. I mean, there there was a lot of uh, when when you know I decided to do the show, then you know this idea of okay now now we gotta find you know another fifteen and it's not hard to find the tunes. It's just it's trying to figure out what is a good mix of tunes for the shows and then what works on the instrument and and what you know the arrangements can be. So one of the main things uh, that I always try to get across when I'm when I'm telling people about the show because you know the name of, of Bruce off Broadway is you know a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek thing off of the Springsteen on Broadway or is a very tongue-in-cheek thing off of that and the fact that I'm playing ukulele and you know we make some uh, there's a press photo that we use of that's sort of that classic Bruce at the bottom line photo where he's got the it's the a shot of his back and he's got the telecaster slung yes. and he's got the 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 Chuck Taylor's uh, uh tied to it so you know we took that shot with a uke slung behind me and I got the tiniest little baby Chuck Taylor's and tied him to the thing you know so we, it's a funny photo it's a it's a funny photo and and you know and we're being whimsical about it, yeah. but the show's not a joke. It's not like a joke show. It's not a comedy show. It's not ha ha ha. He's playing you Bruce Springsteen tunes on uh, on ukulele like it's a, a you know ironic thing or a comedy act. Yeah, you, you are. Know, I'm doing, really serious about the instrument yeah, and I'm really serious about the songs and right. and you know I'm I'm trying to make it a real show. And, you know, as far as the arrangements, I'm always I'm always thinking about the record and not just the song when I'm doing the arrangement, because since I was a little kid growing up, so much of the things that I like in records are arrangement things, are things that are not just oh, that's the melody and those are the chords and there's the lyrics and that's the song. Uh, and, you know, in Bruce's stuff, like, you know, on Born to Run, that that glockenspiel thing or the, the horns in 10th Avenue freeze out or, you know, there's so many great arrangement things on these records. So I want to capture those things and I, and I want to kind of honor them. And, and, and it's almost to me like sitting down with you 
and sharing what I love about the song and what I love about the record, right? It's like, oh, and listen, this horn part's going to come up. And so then I'm trying to find a way of alluding to all of those parts with only with only four strings, you know, <laughs> trying to figure out how I can take, you know, something like Thunder Road that's going to have a, a piano and a harmonica and a saxophone and a couple of guitars and a bass and, you know, uh, all, all of these things and do something on just the ukulele that still makes you, you know, it's, it's, it's its own thing and it's its own arrangement, but it also makes you, you know, think about how great those arrangements are, you know, cause I think sometimes with a lot of like classic rock and a lot of these songs that we've heard so much because we've heard them so much, we've lost sight of like, we only know they're great now because we've been told they're great a million times for the last 50 years. But in fact, they are great. Like there is a reason why they became these iconic tunes. And I think sometimes even just shifting the lens a a, a little bit, I say a little bit, but you know, playing it on like, here's a lot of that arrangement that's on the record, but on a different instrument. So you're, you're realizing, you know, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That part's great. I love that. Oh yeah. I love that bit. You know, you know, so I'm always, I'm always trying to do a little bit of that too, because I'm just such a fan of records, you know? Exactly. You know, one of the things I, I talk about is every once in a while, a few years ago, I watched the original, the day the earth stood still. Yes. And I went, oh my goodness. This is a great movie. I mean, not a great movie for its time. It's a great movie. Um, and and I was struck by there are some classics that are without time. You know, there's other things you see and go, well, you have to understand that, you know, not a lot of people had done this at this time. Now it seems kind of cliche, but that was just a very clear kind of fun, entertaining movie. Um, you know, I'm listening to your music, and, and I, I, you know, I want you to tour to Dallas. Uh, you know, Linda and I'll put you up here in the house. So Thanks that way so you know much. That. Yeah. But um, this isn't, and in, in nothing wrong with Weird Al. I mean, he has a style, and that's what he's doing, and he has a beloved fan base. But this is not... Um, a parody. This is not. Yeah, this yeah, is, absolutely not. You know, this is straightforward. I want to um, the using this unique instrument. Um, you know, it was funny because I was telling my wife Linda. I said, "Yeah, I'm going to talk to this guy Jim. He's doing Bruce Springsteen off Broadway. It's going to be a ukulele show, like Tiny Tim played." <laughs> right. <laughs> and I'm like, well, you know. I would have thought Amanda Palmer, but okay, you know, ukulele. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, and I, I love the idea of you. You know, you're kind of expressing your own creativity. You get to scratch your because this can't be easy. You aren't a guy, and and I don't mean anything bad about this, but you're not a guy that's here sitting it comes. there. Here it comes. You no, know, with the guitar, <laughs> with this jar, tip jar in front of him. And doing, hey, can you play a Springsteen song? And he does, I'm on fire. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. it, it, it's, it, you know, he is background music. That's, you know, all he's there for. 
the pizza place, the guy paying the guy, he's doing James Taylor, and he's a lot of fun, but all he is is background music. You specifically are, are you have designed a show, and I'm yes. curious, like, you know, how much work did it have to go to, okay, what songs do I want to sing? What order do I want to put in? How do I, what story do I want to tell with this? You know, I'm going to start at this level. I got to bring them up. I got to bring them down. I got to bring them up. And then I got to finish off strong. Yeah, exactly. It's it's all of that stuff, um, you know, kind of in various orders and and coming up multiple times throughout the process. Um, You know, I, the first idea was to, play all of the songs that Bruce is doing in Springsteen on Broadway and do them in that order. You know, the, the first idea was let's just model it on that. Um, but you know, he, he is also doing a, a specific show and it's, you know, tying into his autobiography and, uh, you know, there's a lot of storytelling and certainly wouldn't make sense for me to be talking about, uh, you know, uh, how Bruce felt in his childhood, uh, in, in that context. And so some of the songs were maybe not the best fit for playing on ukulele and for, uh, you know, he does some things from, uh, uh, Nebraska. God, what does he do? I wish I could remember. Uh, but you know, great, great yeah. tunes, but very folky and kind of, uh, you know, almost Dylan esque in, in that it's a, it's a verse form that just repeats 15 times with 15 different sets of lyrics. And, right. So not, not. And so it became obvious as like, OK, I got to think of this as its own show right. that has its own structure. Well, because, like, you know, I, you know, Jim, I love the wish it. You know, that's one of the songs. That's it. Yep. Yeah. You know, where it's talking about his mom. Yeah. Um, it's a very personal song. Um, and it would be interesting to hear it on a ukulele. But part of the reason why this is such a powerful song is it is specific about his mom. And, it, and exactly, and that that was that was part of it as well. Is like, okay, if you're in a theater of 800 seats or whatever that place is, yeah, and it's Springsteen, you, you know, 30 yards in front of you with an acoustic guitar playing this really personal song that, you know, is a little slow and a little long, but it's going to be riveting because it's him in this small place doing this thing that's tied into his life experience and the, and the stories that he's telling you in this. And when you start to take out those elements and just have it on its own, it's maybe not the best, you know, because I think it's like, it's like a six or seven minute song. Right. You know, and so it just so so things like that became obvious. And and so it really I wanted to have a certain amount of hits because I want people coming in. Obviously, they're Bruce fans or they wouldn't be be coming. So they're going to know the catalog pretty well. But it's again, because of of the fact that a lot of the arrangement thing that I'm doing is is tying into those recordings I want people familiar enough with those recordings 
that they are appreciating, uh, you know, what is happening in the arrangement and, and, you know, what, why I'm playing what I'm playing essentially. Uh, and then, yeah, you know, there's pacing issues. Like we gotta, we gotta have some fast stuff. We gotta have some introspective, uh, slow moments. Uh, you, you know, you have to have, um, some very serious songs and some, uh, you know, kind of more whimsical things, uh, and figuring out how to balance that. And then, you know, there've been a, a, a couple of things where, uh, just the instrument itself because of the range or the key that the song is in, you know, they, they haven't quite worked out. So I've set those aside for now and, uh, just gotten it all, uh, together. But I think you asked like, you know, how long was the, the process? I mean, I, when it came time to do it, it was the better part of six weeks, you know, six, eight, 10 hours a day, on the days that I didn't have, you know, other gigs, which, uh, you know, so, you know, say three or four days a week. Uh, and, you know, but that, but like I was saying earlier, you know, that, that kind of thing, that to me is, is fun. You, you know, it's like, Oh, really? I, I can just take the next month and just play. You can try to figure out a bunch of new arrangements. You know, that, that's not, it's not a hardship. It's hard work, but it's not a hardship, you know? Yeah, I, I can imagine that. Now, um, do you – you've done this before, correct? You've played uh, this gig? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Bruce Off-Broadway. Yeah, yeah. This will be uh, maybe the fifth or sixth time uh, uh, that we're doing it. Fifth do, or you, do you tweak the set list or you kind of have it down now? It's uh, been pretty stable – um, it's about to start getting tweaked, uh, because I'm starting to, um, play some festivals. Uh, and so that just needs to, you know, the time needs to come down and, uh, we need to go a little bit more anthemic in the, uh, outdoor kind of environment. And then we're starting to, uh, go back to places like, uh, the Saint I played back in, uh, mm, March, April, something like that. And so we're going back and uh, uh, doing shows in July and August there as well. And so, you, you know, when I go back to places, I want to make sure that there's, uh, you know, a, a song, a new song or two that starts to get in the mix. And also, uh, one of the things that I can do now, you know, I had that six week period to kind of come up with a full show, which meant that I could do a lot of work and I could do some pretty involved things. But if there was going to be a song that maybe the one song was going to take just a week of working at it eight hours a day, I didn't really have that time to put into one song because I needed to get 16 songs together. Sure. But now that I have 16 songs together, I can start targeting, you know, some of the things that were a little too adventurous uh, for the first show. And I, you know, I don't, uh, it, it, it's not like, uh, these are simple strummy, strummy arrangements in this, but it's just like, for example, something like jungle land, I would really like to be able to do that, but there's so many different sections and so many different things that I have to do. I've tried it a couple of times and I can get 
certain sections working if I play it in a certain key or use a certain tuning, but then other sections don't work. And I haven't, I haven't quite found the key to making the whole tune work on uke and be in a key where I can also sing it. So, you know, something like that will get folded into the set later as, you know, I have more time to work on an individual song and just, you know, beat my head against the wall until it's bloody. So what's kind of funny is I was going to ask you that, Jim, is, you know, is there a, um, you know, a song that you'd like to crack, but you just haven't done yet. And so um, thanks for reading my mind and knowing that. Answer. Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah. Jungle yeah. Land is uh, uh, definitely. And, you know, I, I'm in Philly, right? Yeah. I live in Philly, which, y- you know, is not Jersey, but is real, real close. It is and, darn uh, close. Yes. And and Philly is is really, you know, it's a major, major Bruce town and a major Bruce market and yes. was one of the first places to crack him open on the radio and you know he always when he comes to philly he always plays jungle land you know it's like a philly thing so i i i feel that that weight on me even even if i'm doing the show somewhere else you know it's it, because i'm from philly and it's bruce i just i feel like i gotta crack jungle land and I'll crack it, but you know it, it uh, yeah. uh, might might inv- involve a few uh, few broken bones and blood transfusions and <laughs> things like that. Um, that gosh, this is this is amazing. Um, I, did um, so I do have to ask you the Mary question. So, um, guy named Jay was on the podcast with me over a year ago, and. He is a honors English teacher for a high school in that area. Okay. Actually, yeah, he is in that Philly area. And um, they do Thunder Road as a poem, uh, and they compare it to Robert Frost, uh, The Road Less Traveled. They do a whole okay. unit on this, and they just they talk about the literary and all the you know all the meanings, and they discuss. And at the end, it takes about two days. He says, "Okay, you know, students, does Mary get in the car?" Yeah, yeah, boy. Uh, as a younger man, I would have said yes. I don't know. Now I don't know. Uh, and you know, and what's the other question is, should she? Oh, that is a very good. Yes. Uh, I mean, I, I would like to hope that the impetuousness of youth that they are, are both under in, in the song, uh, makes her make a run for it. And she gets in. I hope that's the answer. Uh, but you know, then there's the quiet lives of uh, the li- the lives of quiet desperation, and uh, you know, maybe that's how it ended. That is a very good answer, sir. All right, June twenty second, the Saint, Ashbury Park, New Jersey, Bruce off Broadway. Uh, yes, indeed. Go. You can use Mr. Google to find tickets. Uh, yes. And uh, go and 
if go and tell Jim that you heard about him on Set Lusting Bruce. Yeah, um, please. Yeah, uh, this was a blast. Uh, thank you. I hope you had a good time. Uh, yeah, know. really nice, Jesse. Good. Very nice Thanks. talking to you, man. Um, any final thoughts before I close it up? Uh, remember, they're not booing. They're saying, you. <laughs> uh, you know, my favorite story about that is, and uh, we shared this when Tom Petty died, um, and I don't know if it's true or not, but I want it to be true. Um, he was playing before Bruce, I think, on the the No Nukes or Muse or one of these festivals. And yeah. someone pulled Tom Petty aside and said, you know, they're not booing you. They're saying Bruce. And Tom Petty supposedly said, is there a difference? <laughs> uh, which I thought. Well, is... yeah, because because if you're Tom Petty and they're saying Bruce, yeah, it, it's a valid question. <laughs> yeah. He's like, you know, what's the matter? They're telling me they're ready for me to get off. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, so um, hang on a minute while I do some business. If you want to join me and share your Springsteen story, um, Reach out to me, setlustigbruce at gmail.com. We have a Twitter at Jesse Jackson DFW. Uh, we have a Facebook page, uh, Set Lusting Bruce. Would love to hear from you guys. Uh, Jim, if someone wants to reach you, how can they? Uh, I am on all the usual things uh, as Jim Boja. Uh, my last name is spelled B-O-G-G-I-A. Uh, that's Twitter, that's Instagram, that's Facebook and stuff. And there is a Bruce off Broadway Twitter account that you should, uh, hop on and follow, uh, for all Bruce off Broadway news. Absolutely. That is great. Um, do you do land of hope and dreams? Uh, not yet. Okay. That would be, uh, that. That's one of my favorites. So um, good. I, I'll, well, I'll, when I come when I come to Dallas, it'll be in the show. Sounds great. All right. Right so, on, man. All right. So we're going to end with. So play your favorite cover song, especially if the words are wrong, because even if your grades are bad, it doesn't mean you're failing. Do your homework with a fork, and eat your Fruit Loops in the dark, and bring your etch a sketch to work, and play your ukulele. Thank you, listeners. Yeah, Jim. We'll talk to you soon. Right on.
Take a big swing. What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions, and plenty more. 
from assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.